If you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1212. Or 1212, if that's easier to remember. I'm sure we are all familiar with John 3.16, but today we're going to be in 1 John 3.16. John 3.16 tells us how much Jesus loved us. and He was sent into the world to give us eternal life. And here, in 1 John 3.16 and following, we're going to learn what it looks like for us to love the world as that example. So again, 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you today. By this, we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how? Does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. If you would please join me in prayer as we examine this together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this text that's in front of us. It's a challenging one, but I pray that you would help us to look at it meditate on it, delight in it for what it tells us about what you've done for us and what you will empower us to do too. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We say, I love you too much. Now, this is not because I'm some dour Presbyterian who doesn't like warm hearts. I think this is a problem because we're English speakers. It's not our fault. There is only one word that we have for love. And I can say that I love my wife and I love Philly cheesesteaks. Those are two very different loves, aren't they? Yes, that's my wife over there. (laughs) And I do love her a lot more than Philly cheesesteaks. A lot more. Now... The reason why this has become, and the reason why I'm starting out this way, is it's not because that I think that we shouldn't love one another, or that I think that we shouldn't say it. The reason why I think we say it too much is because we don't really mean it. Not in the way that the Bible defines it. The definition for love has been up for debate a lot in our culture. It's really difficult, really, to know what it is. How are we going to define it? So at this point, the most common thing for our culture to say is simply, love is love, which is a terrible definition because it uses the word in the definition. The reason, though, why we phrase it that way is because we've given up defining it. We've given up trying to come up with an authoritative view about what love looks like. So we've simply left it up to however you wish to define it, whatever it means to you. Well, love means something. It means something to God. And in fact, in this very book, it describes that God is love. Well, if he's love, 
itself, then I'll bet you he gets to define it. And if God gets to define love, well, that rips it right out of our hands, doesn't it? So how does Jesus define love? Well, he's defined it quite beautifully. And it's a love that we do well to think about today. The way we tend to define love is a very inward and personal subjective thing. How it is that I feel about something. And love is almost always defined in reference to myself. How do I feel about something? How does something make me feel? Do I feel loved? The Bible is not so mysterious about that. Love, in fact, for the Bible is not a subjective, personal, private, and inward thing. But this is actually a sacrificial action that is outward-focused. If I love something, that means I am doing something. There is an action involved. And that's what we're going to see here today. In order to do this well, in order to love the way that the Bible calls us to, we're going to need some help. We're not going to be able to draw from our own heart's well. We're going to have to draw from the well of another. Of course, that well is Christ himself and how he has loved you. So let's explore this together. If you're joining us here today, we are in the midst of a Christmas season a sermon series called The Gifts That God Gives to Us. We've been looking at some of the fruit of the Spirit and corresponding to the candles that we've been looking at today. And today we're coming to the very first gift, the very first fruit of the Spirit, which is love. So, how I'm going to be look, looking at this and approaching this today, you can see on your outlines on the back of the bulletin. Don't worry, it's just one point. It will be easy to follow today. And that is what love is. Love is doing to others what Christ is doing for you. That's love. So let's see how this works. We're looking at 1 John today. Now, the guy who wrote 1 John happens to be the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. This was one of Jesus' disciples who was following behind him for those three years and observing every little thing that he did. He is called the disciple of love because this is something that he focuses on a lot in his books. But what's interesting is what John is really focused on is that you would know Jesus and know that you know Jesus. In the Gospel of John, at the very end of the book, or close to the end of the book, chapter 20, he says, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now he writes now a letter to one of the churches, and he is writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. What does it look like to be a Christian? Anyone can say that they believe in Jesus. That's not hard. We can say those kinds of things all the time. But what does it look like for that profession to be true, for this to be from the heart? Well, that's what he's going to examine as he looks through this book. Now, this book, the first John, is 
pretty short. You could read it through in a single sitting. In fact, I would encourage you to do that while you have a couple of days off from work. Think about this as you go home. But as we're going through, he's going to write these things to us that we know that we can be believers. Now, he comes up very early on in the very first part of chapter 1. He tells us that we are not going to expect perfection on this side of eternity. Looking like a Christian, being a Christian, is not being perfect. As it says right here in 1 John 1, 8, very start of the letter, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with this thought that we are not going to be perfect as we go about this exercise, nevertheless, Christians are going to look different from those who aren't. Here's this expectation of what this is going to be. And it's very simple. It's a very easy test. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. How do we know that we've come to know Jesus? By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Very simple. If you love Jesus for following him, you'll do what he says. It's actions. Again, it's not perfection, but it's the general direction of your life. We often talk about the Christian walk. We throw this around a lot in our uh, Christianese. And I think it's actually a really good way of thinking about it. But instead, we should think about it like the way that a toddler is learning to walk, of what the Christian life looks like. When my children were young and were dragging themselves across the floor, if someone was to ask me, are your children walking yet? I never said, well, they are definitely thinking about it. No, they've not taken a step yet, but they're walking because they really want to. I can tell. No, the simple test of whether or not they were walking was, were they taking steps? Were they moving forward on two feet? Now, was I waiting until they could sprint across the room to say that they were walking? No. When those first early halting steps forward, I said, here, we're walking. They would still stumble. They'd still fall over. I still stumble and fall over sometimes, mostly because of the toys on the floor. But I don't say that I don't walk because I trip. But I do say that the pattern of life of one that is walking, even when they fall down, that's the pattern that we're looking for. How are you doing in your Christian walk? Would others say that you're walking? Think about those people that are close to you, your children, or your spouse, or your parents, if you're blessed to still have them. Would they say that you are walking behind Jesus? That question does have an answer. And it is a yes or a no. And this is what he's laying out for us. John's not kidding around. This is eternity that we're talking about, of whether or not you're going to heaven. Now, you may rightly say, now, wait a second. Are you saying that the way to get to heaven is by doing a lot of good things? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because believe it or not, heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for perfect people. 
You perfect? No. It's not just actions. It's what Christ has done for you. Those actions demonstrate that you're a Christian. They're not the means for how you get to heaven. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But this is also not, when we say actions and following after Christ, this isn't just a dead thing that we do. We can see a lot of people gathered in churches that have no interest in what's going on. They've got all the outward actions for it, but they're missing something. Paul actually points this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You knew there was no way I was going to be able to talk about love and not mention chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. But there's something really interesting here. Here, Paul is laying out for us all the actions that you could have. And they're actually really impressive. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you see the point that Paul is trying to make here? You could have some of the most impressive gifts possible, be able to speak every single language without studying it, including the language of heaven as if there was one. But if you don't have love, then you're just a noisemaker. Might as well put a white noise machine up on the pulpit. Be the same thing if you don't have love. It's the same thing if you could work miracles. It'd be the same thing if you had all of the Westminster Confession memorized. All of your biblical doctrine set in a row. But if you have not love, then you're just a computer. Now, Paul is not saying these actions are bad. He goes on to say to desire these things. But love is foremost. Because this is the motivation for all of those things. Believe it or not, you can go out and you can live a very impressive life without having the heart of, the heart of love as a motivator. We see it all the time, don't we? It seems like every other month or so we'll see some item in the news about some pastor who had what seemed to be this thriving ministry but was keeping a secret life in the background. He had all the impressive things, could make all the noise, but he didn't have love for Christ. We can tell that because he wasn't following him. It's more than just actions. Love is the critical piece. And that's what he, that is John now, coming back to him, is writing as he goes along. And then he gets to chapter 3. And we get to how it is that we define love. He gets to verse 16 in chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is the perfect summary of the Christian life. Do I know what the Christian life is? It's right there. 1 John 3, 16. But notice the order. He does not start out with a command first. 
Y'all get started loving people. Or else. That's typically how it's preached. But that's not how it's written. It starts out by saying, you have been really loved. How has Jesus loved you? When we think about Jesus in the popular imagination, we think, oh, well, Jesus loved us and he, when he was on the world by healing people. He fed all these hungry folks. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He taught people the mysteries of life. That's how he loved us. Well, that's part of it. But we're missing a pretty big piece. Those things are important. Those things cost Jesus energy. But the expression, the saying, the way that we know that he loved us was for what he did, which was sacrificing of himself. And not just on the cross, either. We talk about that too. And it's a needed part. You and I are very sinful people. You know all those commandments that you've been hearing about? Not to lie, not to commit adultery, not to, com- not to covet All those things that we do, those are all missing the mark of what Jesus calls us to be. We make those mistakes all the time. And when we do that, we're sinning against the ultimate thing in the universe. And when we sin against the ultimate thing in the universe, it demands the ultimate punishment, doesn't it? I mean, we understand the importance of the person when it's a crime. When we hear about someone hurting an adult, we think that's unjust and they need to be punished. When we hear of someone hurting a child, we're all inflamed with rage, aren't we? We have no patience for that. And we almost would say, no matter what punishment someone like that gets, we say, it's not enough. We have a deep understanding of what it means to sin against something precious. And for us, it's children. Well, God is the child maker. He's the one who's made all things. So anything that we do that's against his law demands an ultimate punishment, doesn't it? An eternal punishment in a place called hell. Now Jesus died on the cross taking that punishment for us. That's a beautiful thing. All of the sins that we had were put on Jesus' record and taken away. The punishment was executed in our place. But there's more that Jesus did than that. It's not enough to just have your debt wiped out to zero. You need something more. And that's what Jesus was doing all the other years he was here on the planet. You ever wonder what Jesus was up to the first 30 years of his life before he got into the Gospels part? You think, like, well, he was probably a carpenter making tables and chairs. He was doing a lot more than that. He left the praises of the angels from the throne of heaven to make chairs because he was living a faithful life. He was not only dying the death that you deserve to die, but he was living the life that you're supposed to live. He was the perfect toddler because you all were once toddlers, weren't you? Some of you still are. And you need a faithful representative for what it looks like to live faithfully as a toddler. That's a sacrifice of every day. That's not just dying for us. That's living for us. And then when he ascended back into heaven, he continues to pray for you. In Romans 8, 
is what it says. He's continuing to minister to you. This has been a lifelong work for Jesus. That's how we know love. That's the standard package. We tend to look at love like that and say, well, that's a luxury. That's a radical Christian over there who loves like that. Like, no, that's the expectation for us. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's not just being willing to die for somebody. I mean, how often does that come up, really? It's about living for the other person. When it's not convenient. When it's hard. When there's no one watching either. It's a self-sacrifice. That's what love looks like. That's what Jesus is getting at. Now, if you're wondering, like me, as I was preparing this passage... You would say, does this have a limit? Is there a point at which we can love people too much? Did John not put any guardrails on this? And the answer is no. There is no limit to biblical love. But where I think the question we're really asking is, is where, does, where is the line between biblical love and selfish love? Biblical love is always pointing to Jesus. You can't point to Jesus and enable people's sin. You can't point to Jesus and say things that people want to hear versus what they need to hear. We can do a lot of things for the sake of love. And what we actually mean by that is for the sake of the comfort of my own heart. And we're willing to throw some money at a problem so this way we don't have to look at it anymore instead of investing in the person. Love looks like just saying something to get through Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner so we don't have to bring up this issue. So we can just avoid the elephant in the room. Those are often done for the sake of love. But it's not biblical love. It's a love that points to Jesus and brings him to all of those situations. And sometimes that costs us a lot of time. If we're honest, we'll then realize there is no way we can do this. And in fact, if you're thinking to yourself, there's no way I can do this, good. It's right where I want you. Not because I want to control you with guilt but because I want to point you to someone who can relieve your guilt. I want to point you to Jesus. There is no way that you can love people enough to fit this standard. We don't go out and try to live this way in order to earn our way to heaven. If we're thinking, oh goodness, I haven't been loving people very well. I need to go out and love people so I can make sure I get to heaven. That's not loving people. That's using people to get to heaven. Come on now. A genuine love for other people comes from Jesus. You can't do this on your own. 
You can't draw from your own wealth. It's shallow and shallower than you think. You need to go to Christ because that's what he's always telling you to do. If you could live this on your own, then Jesus wouldn't be necessary. Instead, he comes to pay the penalty for your lack of love. That's why he died on the cross, or one, one of the many reasons as to why. So this lack of love that you've been having, it can be forgiven. And really, only when you come to realize that, only then are you actually free to love people the way they're supposed to be loved. Not using people in order to get into heaven. Knowing that the only way that you're staying on this side of the mountain is because you are firmly harnessed in, now you're undistracted to go and rescue other people. Because you know that because of Jesus, you and God are okay. He's paid the penalty for you. Now just go out and just love people. Love in Jesus' power. Now, maybe you're saying, well, yes, I've come to Jesus. I know that I need him, that I'm a sinner. I've come to him and asked for forgiveness. Turn from my sins as best as I can in the power of Christ. But this is still really hard. Though there's a couple different reasons for why. It might be that you don't spend enough time thinking about how much Jesus actually does love you. And that you today are loved. Really? A lot of times we spend our focus looking at ourselves and what terrible people we are. There's a place for that. But the only place for that is to get you to go to Jesus. And to say, but he loves me anyway. Even though I don't deserve it. He still prays for me. He still provides for me. He fills my lungs with air every day. He really loves you. And when you spend time thinking about that, maybe you have to remind yourself every morning that you're loved by Jesus. It's like a fire hose of love being fired through a burlap sack. You can't help but hold that in. It's got to leak out to know that you're loved by Jesus. But maybe you're saying, well, I'm still struggling to love people. Yes, I know Jesus loves me, but it's still hard. Well, are you asking for Jesus' help to love people? He wants to hear from you every day. It says that his grace is sufficient for you that day. You need to keep coming back. Asking him for fresh love today for other people. You can't keep working off of the same thing that you did yesterday. It's a daily coming to Christ and asking for the power to do what he commands. Or maybe you're saying, but really? You don't know who I'm married to. You don't know who my child is. Or who my roommates are. I've been pouring myself out to them for decades. And nothing seems to change. What do I do here? I can tell you, even all of this outpouring of love that you've been doing for somebody, it's not for nothing. Even if they don't recognize it. 
even if they don't see it. Because there is someone who does. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. I'll read it to you. It says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through whom faith and patience inherit the promises. Even if no one else sees what you're doing, the Lord sees what you're doing. And He's delighted. He's not unjust to overlook it. He sees. And that there's an inheritance coming. There's promises that have been made to you. So take heart. Keep loving. Because Jesus loves you. Because he will give you the power to love other people. And he sees what you do. And is delighted by it. Finally, let me encourage you that you're not alone in this. Often when we see the world and all of its problems, we think there's no way I can do this to solve all of these problems. And you're right. Sometimes the thing that we need in order to be able to love other people is to have the humility to say, I need some help in loving this person or in solving these needs. There's a lot of ways that we can love our city. But there are far more problems than there are one person to solve them all. It's us together in the church to help love other people. To say, hey, there's a need over here and you're really good at this. We need some help over here. You can love people over there. There's no way we can all love all the people all the time. You're not God. But here today we can love people as he's called us to. In the power of the love that he has given to us. Now finally, if you're here today and are saying, I've never loved anybody like that. Nor do I fully understand how it is that I can be loved like that. I would encourage you, as my brother Ryan said earlier today, go talk to him. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Aaron. Nothing would delight us more than to show you how Jesus loves us. And the transformation that that love can bring. We've seen it demonstrated in Ryan. It's been a pleasure to see that. And it's been a pleasure as your pastor to get to see that in so many of your lives as well. It's an honor to be able to serve in this way. To see how the Lord is transforming you. But if that's not true of you today, this is a great time to make it right. This is a great time to find out how much you are loved and how you can be changed to love other people. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we thank you for this love that you have given to us and what it means for us. Lord, I pray that these words that have been spoken would have an impact on us all and that we would go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, that you have loved the world and that you have loved us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.